were under a lot of gunfire. And when those two helicopters came in, we called them the angels of death. These girls came in and just slayed everything. It's like, you told them to go away. What's that about? And the reason I did that was because we had bad guys coming across the river and I was trying to push the helicopter. I wanted to push the helicopter out. And I wasn't even the ground force commander. I was like, hey man, get those helicopters out of here because I wanted to get the bad guys in the boats coming across the river, push the helicopters off. And then once they're committed and they're getting out with guns, I bring the girls back and they just gun them down while they're stuck in the mud. Um, that was kind of my plan. That's what worked. But the guys were really frustrated. He, he puts his hand up. He goes, what's with calling those helicopters off, man? Like, we were taking a lot of effective fire. And I, uh, you know, you just trying to get your jihad on? And I was like. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Matt Gray Show. Today, we have a very, very special guest, an absolute legend that I feel super lucky to call a friend. Jimmy is a retired Navy SEAL commander with over 22 years of service. He's developed and teached curriculums on combat leadership to all sealed chiefs and combat ethics to the Navy special, Naval Special Warfare community and Navy JAG community. Commander May has seven deployments in the Middle East and has an array of awards, including three bronze stars and the Purple Heart. Not only does he have experience working across the globe in high stakes environments to find common ground across a wide array of conflict scenarios, um, but he also has been able to scale his own ventures. He's the CEO of Sushi Assassin, an in-home sushi catering business that he's developed, as well as an executive services company um, that he uses to go and teach people around management, dealing with high-stress scenarios. And in addition to that, is a legendary spear fisherman, surfer, martial artist, and an amateur beekeeper, of all things. Uh, today, uh, we're gonna dive into a lot of amazing topics uh, that I consider Jimmy to be an expert in, uh, like dealing with management under pressure, how to build resilience, and how to deal with stress. So without further ado, I'm super grateful, humbled, and incredibly happy to introduce uh, Jimmy May. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. I don't know if I'm legendary to any of those things, but uh, I try to do them, so we'll, we'll, we'll kick it off. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you here um, and grateful for you uh, making the time. So to dive into things, um, you know, we've shared uh, lots of stories and uh, super grateful we met last year uh, in LA and since then I've kept in touch and um, I've learned a lot from you on, you know, your different, you know, management techniques and the systems that you've built. Um, I'm curious, so, you know, you were managing hundreds of soldiers in a high pressure environment. I feel like you're someone with a lot of tools, a lot of systems for extreme ownership, um, as well as leadership to kick things off. How do you deal with managing so many people and staying cool under pressure in those like high stakes environments? Well, I'm not going to take extreme ownership. That is my buddy Jocko. He runs that. So I'm a, I, I don't, probably a trademark. So I'm not going to impinge on him. He's a good man and a friend. And I want to make sure I don't do wrong by him. Um, managing lots of people, you know, it, it comes down to making sure that you only manage a couple people. So if I have 1,100 people or 1,400 people in my organization, I probably really only manage five, and then the structure breaks down from there. And making sure that you empower those people at the different levels, because if I show up as like the top guy, I can undercut everybody if I want to, but what that does is that takes the legs out from under them to be able to lead. You know, um, One of the things I've learned is I empower the right people. Rank is not as important to me as their character and their ability. And so I empower the right people. 
and I fire people quick. I don't waste a lot of time. That's one of the great things about being in the community I was in. You know, it's it's not for everybody. And so I can be selective and take the guys I wanted to take. So I think if I had to distill it down to a couple things, number one, fire quick. Don't waste your time. Um, we can we can teach mistakes of of effort. We can't correct mistakes of character on a fast enough timeline for me. And then, you know, once you empower those right people, don't undercut them, you know, work through them. So that's kind of in a nutshell. I don't know if that's where you want to go with it. I know it's awesome. And so, you know, I've seen some stats where, you know, the average manager leaves a bad hire on board their company for an average of seven and a half months. You know, we often have that sort of problem teammate that, you know, somehow made it through the ringer is now on board the team and they've become, you know, not a great fit with the culture or something's come up. But for some reason, uh, and I know I've been there, we struggle to just make the hard decision uh, to cut that person uh, for the uh, you know, sake of the greater good of the company. I'm curious, like, how do you kind of manage that? You talk about kind of firing quick. What does your process look like for, you know, identifying when someone's not a great fit and then making those changes? There's a book called Good to Great that Jim Collins wrote. Um, I don't know him personally, but uh, one of the things he said in there was like, if you look at someone and you're like, and you're like, what would I do if I, if I lost this guy, it would be dead. It would destroy everything. Okay. That's the right guy. If you don't say that, you should get rid of him. And uh, my first really foray into the hiring firing world was I used to be the executive officer at Buds, which is basic underwater demolition school with the selection and training pipeline for SEALs. And we had a lot of civilians that were just dragging. They just, they were comfortable. It's a government job. It's really, really hard to fire people. Um, I had a guy that actually broke the law and it took me three months to fire him. I'm like, how is that? Um, luckily when you get, you know, in the teams, when I have a guy coming in, if he doesn't, if he doesn't stack up, it's a little easier to fire him. Um, unfortunately, what I saw, what I see in the teams is it's so hard to get these guys through that instead of firing them, they just move them to somebody else and they don't do the work to have a paper trail follow them. So I end up getting a guy that I don't have any information. It's a small community. So I get the reputation. I know he's a problem child, but I don't have anything to pinpoint. And so for me, uh, right off the bat, I start a paper trail on guys. It's not necessarily not only to cover myself, but it's also because it clearly defines what it is I want from them. So, hey, when you come here, here's a piece of paper that says, here's what your expectations of, of you are and expectations of me. And this is what our relationship is gonna be. And then when I have a problem child, I wanna give it a chance to coach the greatness as long as it's not a mistake of character. A mistake of character, lying, stealing, I have no time for that. Like I get cut that away immediately. Um, but if they make a mistake that I think you know, I deem can be correctable, then you know I'll write down, hey, here's what here's the steps you need to take. And then I have a regular battle rhythm where a battle rhythm is like a schedule um, in military parlance where we link back up because I don't want him to only see me when he screws up. Otherwise, I'm just like, oh great, I got to deal with him again. I must have screwed up. So you know maybe it, it starts off if. It, it's a big problem once a week. Hey, at the end of the week, I'm gonna, I wanna see this piece of paper. Let's see if you did these three things. Okay, check, you did. Hey, I'm gonna add a couple more. Or actually, you didn't do those things I told you to do. So now, you know, we document it. Next week, we meet again. If they keep, they start doing well for a long time, then maybe I'll bump it back to two weeks or a month. And then eventually I'll take them off. And now there's someone that can coach someone else to greatness. So that's kind of a rough formula for what I use when I have people coming on that aren't quite uh, up to speed yet. Over the course of your, you know, 22 year career, 
you know, your seven deployments, I'm sure you had, you know, many different, you know, crucibles of leadership. I'm curious, um, you know, an important kind of aspect of, and something I really admire in you is your like mental fortitude, your mental strength. I'm curious, you know, if there's some experiences that you have that really carved you out as a leader and really helped define, you know, your mental fortitude. Man, you're going to make me go heavy really fast. Um, and this is something that I, I've, I talk about with the teams to these day, to this day, but like the biggest thing that hit me, I think that shaped my leadership, um, was when my, my best friend was killed uh, on August 6, 2011. And uh, his name was John Tumbleson. Great dude, great family. My roommate off and on for 10 years. And uh, I just came back from deployment. I missed him by like two days. He left his truck at my house. And then I get called to the command to go up there and um, be the Keiko. That's the casualty assistant something officer. I forget the abbreviation, but it means I'm going to make notification. And of course I knew I was going to be the guy to do that because before you deploy in the teams, you fill out this big stack of paperwork that, that says who's going to be your pallbearers, what songs are your funeral, who do you not want at your funeral. It's like, it's a big involved thing. And it might sound morbid to most folks, but it really solves a lot of problems for the family because you know, this guy's been gone. 300 days a year for the last couple of years. He's a little bit different than what his family used to know. And now, you know, anyway, so I get the call to go make this, make this, have this discussion with his family. And I get there and this isn't the hard part yet. Like, of course I'm going to do that. Like it said, and he told me before he left, Hey, you're making notification. I'm like, yeah, I got it. So I bounce in there. I see his dad and his dad's sitting there and his dad's like, I've been expecting you. I'm like, yes, sir. You know, we didn't have to say much. He's a man, a few words. He was waiting for his wife to get home. She was at her party for retiring after 45 years of being a nurse. And I was like, you're going to tell her or me? He's like, uh, I'll do it. I'm like, okay. So he went out and told her. And then, and then I, I was fresh off deployment. So I stayed there for another day or two, but then I had to go back and I had to get a surgery or two because we get dinged up on deployment sometimes. And, uh, I get back after two or three days and the other folks that were part of the, the Keiko team with me had set up everything already. They had set up, you know, it's a town of 700 people and we have, you know, 1400 people or whatever coming into this town for this funeral. The governor's coming in. There's not buildings that can hold all that. There's that the church that comes in and does the protests at veterans funerals was coming there. And then the bikers that show up and like counter protest against the church, it was just mayhem. And uh, they did a great job setting everything up. So I'm looking through the spreadsheet, flipping through, hey, what am I supposed to be doing? I figure I'm probably speaking. I'm definitely a pallbearer, you know, uh, I'm probably escorting his mom. Anyway, it, when I started looking through it, I wasn't any of those things. And I started to get really mad. I'm like, what is my job? My job is escorting the DVs. I'm like, dude, I'm his best friend. Is this really what you're going to have me do here? And I started to get mad and I was going to go find them, you know, fix the situation in my mind. And I got a couple steps out and then I got really ashamed of myself. And I was like, you know what? This isn't about me. And um, it was kind of JT's parting gift to me was get over yourself. And uh, I shut my mouth and I did my job. And, you know, the people that carried him didn't drop him. The people that the guy that took his mom to the seat and gave her the flag, she found her seat. You know, the guy that spoke did a better job than I would have done. And I did a good job handling the DVs. It made sense. I was a senior ranking guy for, of my friends. So, you know, what I took away from that was 
the most important aspect of, you know, my leadership is humility. And, you know, I don't reach it all the time, but it's one of the things that that experience really illuminated for me. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to say that I didn't make a scene at the funeral and I did what I was supposed to do. And, you know, they did a good job honoring JT for his life. You know, what do you do when you lose him? You know, a man like that, it's, it's a shock to our whole nation. Um, but I didn't make the situation worse is all I can say. Yeah, no, humility is, uh, yeah, oftentimes a, a tough thing to learn and in the moment too, when you're, you know, caught up in the emotions of a scenario and you're you know, nailing it, obviously been, that's right. I was yeah, caught up in the emotion. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's easy to get lost in that. I'm guilty of that. You know, I find that's probably one of my biggest challenges I think in life is when, you know, I feel like I'm getting caught up in a scenario, my, you know, my body gets hot, my head starts racing yeah. and every part of my being just wants to react. And yeah. Yeah. over the course of my life, I think, unfortunately, more of the times than not, I think I have been guilty of moving to reaction. And I think as we go through these experiences, you know, we learn that, you know, if we can stay cool under pressure, slow down, oftentimes we can make a much more calm and collected decision that will later not regret. I'm curious in terms of all the experiences you've had, you know, you've obviously, uh, you know, now developed these sort of like frameworks and ways of being cool under pressure. I'm curious, like, what are some of your strategies there? You know, you've, you're, you've dealt with hard scenarios like you just brought up, you know, you've dealt with, you know, the seven deployments and the experiences there, like there's so much stress all over the place. And I think just everyday humans as well struggle with, just stress, you know, it affects people's sleep. It affects their marriages, their relationships. What are some tools you've learned, um, to, to manage stress and stay cool under pressure? Well, I think to, to kind of like tie back to what we talked about before a little bit, you, you have to give people a way to disagree with you that you can handle. And I see lots of people like, well, just, just, speak up and tell me the truth. And as soon as you, they speak truth to power, power crushes them and it just ruins the whole culture of the organization. And so I think, um, I don't mind having someone tell me I'm messed up. It's a hard thing to, I'm sure like, yeah, sure you don't. I, I don't. It's like, but I have a timestamp on it. Like, Hey, listen, the good idea fairy is alive and well, but she's going to die tomorrow because tomorrow we got to start executing on this. So, if you got ideas, you know, or if I'm messed up, please tell me and let's get straight. But after this, we got to get on a path and get moving. Um, so what I tell leaders is that you have to find a way that for your, you have to cultivate dissent among your organization, especially your sharp people. Like, man, in the SEAL teams, the guys are so smart. I, I was never the smartest person in the room. I, I guarantee that. And, you know, to get their ideas and to draw those out of those guys uh, was really important. But I have to be able to to take that descent in a way I can, I can handle and not everyone can handle to your face. Maybe you need to build an app. So, or maybe you need a, a, uh, some kind of anonymous box or some kind of way to anonymize it. So you don't feel threatened or maybe, you know, you, you, you back up from it. So it's not in my face. It's something they say, they write me a letter. So I usually tell leaders, one of the best things you can do is cultivate dissent, but make sure it's in a way you can handle it. Because everyone says, yeah, I want them to tell me when I'm messed up. But then when they do it, it, it makes them mad. Or maybe they thought they were going to be more tactful and they were just like, hey, dummy, that was a stupid thing. And now they feel disrespected. And instead of trying to solve the problem together, there's a bit of an ego clashing. And, you know, we got egos in the teams. So, 
So when you're kind of soliciting feedback, would you recommend prior to even looking for it, setting up some sort of system or protocol for getting that feedback? So if you're someone that prefers it in writing, you kind of have a, a way for people to give it to you in writing. If you're someone that prefers it, you know, in the moment, but under a certain way where it's, you know, tell me the situation, give me the context and what result you're looking for. Like, how do you, what's the system that works best for you? Um, so I really don't say, I don't mind people telling me what I'm, I'm messed up. So for me, we did what's called a hot wash. And uh, my favorite one I remember doing was in Afghanistan one time. And we came back from just a great op. It went well. Like, I think we had, we, we, every objective of the op was met. Uh, we killed a bunch of bad guys. We found like, I think we found like 31 IEDs or something stupid. And it just really like locked the whole area down. It was a great mission. And I, I came back and one of the guys, so my rule is, hey, rank is off physically. Like you don't wear anything in your rank. We're still in our body armor. We start our AAR and after action report. And we just take notes about what went right, what went wrong. While it's fresh and raw, let's do it. And so this uh, young guy, I'm on my, I think I was on my fifth or sixth deployment. This guy's on his like first. So he's a brand new, new guy. And uh, I remember I thought it was going to be a big love fest. Like, oh, that was cool. The cool thing that we did. This was so cool. And... It wasn't that. When I walked in there, I mean, I just thought we solved so many problems together. It was going to be just this great thing. And he put his hand up and he's like, hey, man, you know, we were under a lot of gunfire. And when those two helicopters came in, we called them the angels of death. These girls came in and just slayed everything. It's like, you told them to go away. What's that about? And... The reason I did that was because we had bad guys coming across the river and I was trying to push the helicopter. I wanted to push the helicopter out and I wasn't even the ground force commander. One of my subordinates was because it's his platoon. I wasn't going to step on his toes. But I, you know, when I come on the radio and say something, it's it carries a little more weight since I am the boss. And I was like, hey, man, get those helicopters out of here because I wanted to get the bad guys in the boats coming across the river, push the helicopters off. And then once they're committed and they're getting out with guns, I bring the girls back and they just gun them down while they're stuck in the mud. Um, that was kind of my plan. That's what worked. But the guys were really frustrated. He, he puts his hand up. He goes, what's with calling those helicopters off, man? Like we were taking a lot of effective fire. And I, uh, you know, you just trying to get your jihad on. And I was like, I was kind of on my heels. And, you know, had I said something like, young man, I remember my first gunfight. You know what I mean? Like I would have just crushed that culture, but I, you know, he's not the only guy in that room thinking that I guarantee it. He's just the guy with the balls to say it. And so, you know, I explained it to him. I was like, Hey, this is what I had. I was in your position earlier. I felt like you had a lot of cover. Those were thick walls. You know, the standoff dish distance where those guys were engaging you from that ditch was 400 meters. I felt like you guys were good. And so, you know, I felt comfortable pushing it because I was kind of out in the open. I was on a road. I couldn't jump in the ditch because uh, there's IEDs everywhere. We were kind of hiding behind a tractor during this thing. And uh, he, I felt like he got it at the time. Well, then years later, I'm teaching the platoon leaders course and he's in the class. And I was like, hey, this is one of the scenarios I talk about sometimes. So he's in the class. Why don't you tell your side of the story? And his side of the story didn't sound anything like mine. His was like, you know, we were pinned down. There was so much gunfire. The air sounded like bacon sizzling with just bullets. I was like, wow, you know, and he goes, and then this guy calls the helicopters off and we got air coming in and he was still mad like years later. And I, 
I looked at him. I was like, yeah, bro, but afterwards, like, I'd explain to you and you knew what was going on and you saw my train of thought. And he's like, long, awkward silence. He goes, it worked out. And he sat down. And, uh, you know, I felt like, you know, I still respect him for having that, the ability to speak truth to power. Um, but uh, it didn't work out in my, in my favor. But I remember that I appreciated him for doing it. I know he wasn't the only guy. And at the very least, I got to say my side of the story. Whereas if, you know, I would have left and those guys would have like, you know, had this big hate fest on uh, Jimmy's, you know, throwing our lives on the line for something. Um, you know, I don't know. But that's how I do it. That's, I do the AAR that way. If you can't handle that, then you need to think of another way to do it. But it's very important that you allow your organization to disagree with you. Otherwise, you end up in a dictatorship. You end up with Putin running around, you know, make, surrounding himself with a bunch of yes men. And it's a painful thing to do, especially as you're coming up the chain. And you, you, it's my turn to be right because you get to be the arbiter of what's right. But if you want to do a good job, you need to make sure that there's a way for your guys to tell you when you're not doing right. Yep. One interesting challenge that you bring up there as well uh, that I can imagine you've experienced a lot of times is like that context switching. You're in one moment, like this dangerous warrior, you know, going and executing on a mission in a high stakes, you know, battlefield. And then in another moment, you need to be sort of cool, be open to feedback, be empathetic, have the ability to actually like listen and sort of slow down. How do you kind of manage that context switching, you know, going from being, you know, basically dangerous to disciplined in a way, or how do you look at that? I don't think that there is much of a context switch. Like you need to be calm. You need to be, you know, deliberate. You need to make decisions. You need to still listen to feedback. Like, I think in the movies, they make it sound like, you know, ah, you're shooting your gun and screaming. It's actually nothing like that. Like, you're like, you know, you should be able to be like, oh, observe one enemy moving tactically with an AK-47. I feel threat to myself and those around me. Engage one enemy. Round, one round, 762. And then I go to my comms and I tell the boss, hey, we've engaged one enemy, 762. One EKA. That's it. It should be like that. That same level of calm. If it's, if it's not, then you're in the wrong business. Yeah. And based on, you know, so this calmness seems like something that, you know, you've really been able to develop, you know, you've been able to kind of train your mind to be, you know, emotionally resilient, um, to develop, you know, an uncanny level of intuition, mental resilience. How do you kind of, uh, how have you developed that? And, and what's your advice to leaders out there that are looking to become more resilient? Well, resilient is, is, is different than, Intuition. We'll start with intuition and bring me back to resilience when we get done. But intuition is just a, it's a matter of experience. And uh, I don't know that I was always right. In fact, I know I was wrong a lot. And, you know, the way to really develop that situational awareness to build that picture is you have to tell your people, especially as you get more, what is important to you. And so in the military, we have these things called CCIRs, critical, critical commanders, intelligence requirements. And basically, these are things that you have to tell me. And the cool thing about this, I always thought it was super dorky, but the cool thing about this now that I get out is like, hey, this tells your people what you need to know. So like for me, for my guys, hey, a death in your family, I need to know. Um, if you're leaving the area more than, you know, 300 miles, whatever, I need to know. If uh, you have um, a, a baby being born, I need to know. If you have, uh, you know, on the battlefield, it's going to be like, hey, if you engage, you you, you need to call me because I'm going to hear gunshots and not know what it's about. And you got to be succinct with what you tell me. Um, if 
you, we find the target or whatever it is we're looking for. I need to know that quick because our tactics are going to shift and now we're going to start working for our exfil plan. Um, so one of the most important things you can do about building your intuition is teach your people down the chain what is important to you. And that, that needs to be like a written piece of paper when, when they sign on, like, hey, you know, this, here's my expectations, you, here's, my expect, here's what you can expect of me. And these are things I need to know. Like if you're my supply guy, hey, I need to know when we're low on these things. These things are super important to me. Let's just say they're bullets. Like if, if I get below this level, that's something you got to like call me immediately on my cell phone. You know, maybe you have like a red, like a stoplight chart, like, hey, when you're at this level, you just tell your supervisor. At this level, he needs to tell us, but now we're in the red, I need to know. Now it's time for me to get involved and engage. And the more you can arm your people with what is important to you, the better your intuition is going to become because now they understand what matters. Um, because nobody wakes up in the morning like, hey, how can I screw up today? You know, they just, it's just a matter of you communicating what is important to you. For sure. And then on the resilient side, how do you kind of look at developing that and, and cultivating that on your team? So there's a couple things I, I teach when I, I talk about resilience and, you know, the best way to teach is, is with a story. And, um, we had on one, one time we had a guy get hit in the plates with a, with a round. Um, so basically he got shot. We had these, these plates, it didn't hit his body, but it kind of like messed up his, his, his plate a little bit. You had to get a new plate. We didn't think it was a big deal because at the time we had like 32 of us, we ended up with like 16 purple heart and three killed on this, on this deployment it was a rough deployment and we're like oh he's fine but he wasn't fine he struggled um and we 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 just sent him home and we we're like hey just go home take some time get yourself back where you need to be and you know he didn't really he didn't do well he they put him on a shore tour so that there's not a lot of shore tours in seal teams you're pretty much deploying or you're like in training somewhere and so he just struggled he just didn't have any that's what we did. We sent him home. Well, years later, I had a guy and uh, this deployment went better, but we still had a couple of guys get hit. And he was trying to stop a guy from stepping on the IED. He was one of our partner force Afghanis. He went to grab him. And when he did, he stepped on the IED and it blew up in his face. And it like, you know, he, he couldn't see his eyes were messed up. And by the time I see him, I see him on the, on the, on the aircraft, sending him out to launch tool Germany to get patched up. He's blind. We don't know if his eyes are going to come back. He's got a trach in. So he's got this hole in his throat where he's breathing from and he's, his face looks like he's been hit with a weed eater and he's all chewed up. And he's one of my really good dudes too. And I was like, man, I was like, Hey bro, like he's not supposed to be coherent. And he, he hears me and he like sits up and I'm like, dude, don't, just don't do anything. You're fine. And he's trying to signal me. And he's like, Hey, what, uh, he, he was telling me, trying to tell me he wants to come back. And I remember I, by this time I was on my like sixth deployment. So I kind of knew, I knew what he needed where I didn't on that first time. The first time we just sent him home, I was my, on my second deployment. I was just a, like a teenager in the, in the, in the operator kind of life. Anyway, I was like, you know what? I'm going to bring you back. If, if you can get good enough to get, I'll bring you back here. I don't know if you can go on opposite voice, but I'll bring you back. But also I got a task for you. I need you to start Every, every week, I need a video from you back to the boys because it's going to be important for them to see you getting better. This is very important. So every week, send a video to the guys. And uh, I remember the, the nurses were kind of like, hey, you should leave them alone. Don't like give them stuff to do right now. And I was like, no, because he, he needs a task. 
He needs a purpose. He needs a goal. And you know what? He would send videos of his rehab. I'd watch him. It was awesome, man. He's like on the treadmill running with like holding on because his eyes are out, you know, and then somehow and I grew back. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. He's back in the teams now and he's going to he's going to retire. And he really recovered. And, and it seems like as good as as I could ever expect him to. Um, and I talked to him recently and I'm really proud of him. And, you know, what we did was we gave him a task. So he has something he has to do not and get his mind off himself. It's for the team. It's not for him because that's the kind of guy he was. Um, number two, we give him a goal. Hey, we'll bring you back if you can make it. He didn't make it. It was a nine month deployment. And I think this was December 10th when this happened. And so I think we went home around June on that deployment. So he didn't make it back. Um, but he also maintained that sense of community because now, you know, he didn't leave under bad, under bad pretenses. He left you know, cause he really physically couldn't do it anymore. And you know, the guy, he stayed in touch with these guys and these guys are talking to him. And I know, uh, I got shot in uh, 2006 and I didn't want to talk to anybody except for the guys who were with me. I just wanted to go back there. That's a different story. But, um, so to wrap this up in the re resilience kind of profile, this is kind of along some of the things I teach businesses, but like, you know, you feel like you just want to give them time, but that's not what they need. They need a little bit of guidance because they're reeling from this big emotional event, whatever it is that happened. And so you need to give them a task. You need to give them a purpose and you need to make sure that they stayed in touch with that community that's important to them. I mean, there's more things you can do, but these are probably the three best things you can do. And uh, that's what we did. And I watched him and, you know, he's still on the teams and doing well. And the guy that we just turned him loose to his own devices, I, I really feel... Uh, a sense of responsibility for not doing that right. You know, I didn't know any better, but it was my job to know better. So I wish I would have, you know, been a little sharper with uh, my guidance for him back then. Appreciate the vulnerability there. And yeah, no, that's an incredible story of resilience. And I love the principles you brought up in terms of, yeah, how to, you know, deal with these sort of difficult scenarios and, and what people really need at the end of the day to, to get through those difficult times. One thing you kind of brought up there uh, was community. Um, you know, I think as humans, one of our, you know, biggest needs on just a deep level is a sense of belonging. And when you look at, you know, all the different sorts of communities that exist in the world and in society, I think the seals are one really shining example of a really tight knit community of, you know, a brotherhood essentially, um, of people that, um, you know, it's just, it's tight knit. Um, there's a code. I'm curious, like, what does the community of Navy SEALs mean to you? And, and what do you think makes that community so, um, you know, so tight, so um, aligned? Um, over the years, it's been something that's been just so formidable and, and kind of maintained its, its code. Um, before I get there, I want to add one more piece to what I just said, because my, uh, my performance for what I did with that first guy gets even worse. And uh, I got back from deployment. <clears throat> uh, so that deployment, they, they all went home. I stayed a little longer. I speak Arabic and they didn't have anybody to speak. So I asked if I could stay longer. So I stayed into Team 5's deployment. So I come back, uh, I don't know, two months later. It's December. And I'm walking across this, we call it the grinder, where Bud students, uh, Bud students train. He was in a first phase instructor now. That was a short tour. So he comes running up to me. He's like, hey, Jimmy. He's like, hey, man. You ever think about how hard that bullet hit you? You think about that? I looked at him and I was like, no, not really, why? He's like, yeah, me neither. 
and that was it. And so here he was, this community, sense of community that we just talked about that he need, reaching out to me, a guy who I've been, I was shot like, I think I got shot like maybe a month before that. I got shot on November 6th. So this was like, I don't know, first week or two of December when I got back. And, you know, reaching out to someone he saw like, hey, common ground, I can have, you know, have this conversation with somebody. And honestly, I wasn't ready to have the conversation. I didn't like talking about it. Uh, I didn't like talking about any of this stuff for a super long time until the, the teams forced me into teaching combat leadership because I didn't want to do it. Um, and it turned out to be a really good therapeutic thing for me because now, you know, I was ashamed of some of the decisions I made and ashamed of, you know, guys got hurt on my watch and what's the team, the community going to think of me. But luckily the community kind of, you know, they accepted me for, you know, the mistakes I made based on what I, uh, what I thought was going on. So, you know, the, the takeaway there for leaders is you got, when you have something bad happen to you, I don't know, it's a miscarriage or a, a divorce or, you know, a parent die or something. You need to like process that and be ready to talk to people because they are going to ask you and you might think they don't know about it. They know about it. If you're in charge, they know everything you do. And there's nothing you can hide from them. And so they might come to you like he did that time and ask you that question. And when you're not ready, you're going to do like I did and screw it up. So... Um, I've got it right since then a few times, but that time I, I still like, I, I whiffed, you know, totally, you know, it's tough in those times where, you know, we've made a, from our perspective, a big mistake. And sometimes you just want to shut down, you want to close off and, you know, yeah. we just go and we're in our heads, you know, and just reeling through the scenarios, what we could have done, what we should have done. And I think oftentimes trying to put on like a perfect face to others, like, you know, everything's okay. And, you know, oftentimes it's hard to see in the moment, but the, the strength really comes from your vulnerability, um, you know, from admitting a mistake or from being open that, you know, something didn't go so well or that, you know, you're struggling. Um, and yeah. there's a level of, you know, with that vulnerability, uh, a deeper sense of connection, um, you know, showing that human side of leadership um, and, you know, a deeper sense of, of community amongst those, whether you work with your family, wherever it may be, um, in terms of like, you know, on the community side of the seals, you know, what does that community mean to you? And, and what do you feel like are some of the key sort of pillars of that community that keep it, um, so, so tight? Well, um, the community, I'll start with what it means to me. The community has been so much for me. It, it's interesting. Like I, I came in, I didn't know what, what I wanted to do with my life. I was just looking for something hard and I felt like everything was dumb. I, I was enlisted in the Navy before I didn't, I thought it was dumb. Uh, boot camp wasn't, was kind of a joke, uh, to be honest. Um, I went to college, college wasn't that big of a deal. I was I always found a way to get around like, Oh, I'll figure I'll study the old tests. I was always you know, dating some, some female athlete. So she would have access to the old tests and I just find my way through things. So I had like a three, six GPA, never went to class. And then uh, my uncle talked to me and he's like, man, I was like, anything hard. He's like, yeah, you should, the, the seals are hard, but you shouldn't do it. I'm like, why? He's like, you won't make it. Oh, that's the only reason I did it. I just wanted to do something hard. And when I got there, I was in buds during nine 11 and nine 11 happened. And it really changed the trajectory of a lot of things. And I started seeing like meeting these men and like these guys, they're serious about they're professionals. Like you might think they're, they're a bunch of thugs with guns. Yes, they are, but they're professional thugs with guns. Like they, they spend all day long perfecting that draw, perfecting that transition, you know, perfecting the turn, perfecting their, the way they do things. And I was like, man, 
these guys, this isn't some like we just work out and this is like a bunch of professionals. Like they are really take their job serious. And I was like, if I'm going to fit in here, I have got to up my game. Like there's no way I, I can coast through here. And I remember I liked it. It sucked me into this and it got me just thinking about how hard these guys work. And, uh, you know, in, you, you talked about what the magic sauce is. I don't know. Like at the beginning of Bud's, we'll look at the class and like, you're not supposed to, to guess who's going to make it or not because it's supposed to like cause a bias or whatever. I know the rules, but you always kind of look like, okay, I'm pretty sure these five dudes are going to make it. And then I'm pretty sure these five dudes are not. And you feel like, okay, I can, I can get, I can get the top five, bottom five with some like level of correctness. No, you can't. You, you don't know. Like, you, you see this big stud, but the thing is, he's never failed in his life. He's the captain of the football team. He's the, every one of those guys is, you know, the, the prom king. They're all, but if they haven't failed before, they're going to get to buds and fail every day. And some of them just can't take it. And, you know, you get this amazing dude that just can't do it. And then you get these other guys who maybe they're a little bit less, maybe they were picked on and they have a little harder upbringing. They can take it a little bit better. And you, you, ne you never see it coming. I'm like, wow, how'd this guy get through? And so, you know, that, but now you're all on the same page. Like you all have experienced hell week. You've all experienced the stress of going through pool comp. You've all experienced trying to learn these weapons and, and figure out how to use all this stuff. And guys are good at different things. And, you know, when I mentor kids now coming through buds, I've got one that's a young kid going through and he'll call me like, Hey, I just can't figure out. He called me. I can't figure out these, this dive physics thing. I'm like, well, I can teach you, but what would be better? if you reach out to one of those officers in your class and have him teach you because you're going to be good at something that he's not. And later on, he'll feel more comfortable asking you for help. And as you get older in the teams, guys are good at different things and they become, we call them SME subject matter experts. And you, you got to lean on those guys. And that's kind of, I think that's the magic sauce. Like you, you get used to asking for help and realizing how gifted the guys around you are. And, uh, you know, when it's your turn that you can provide something, you're so fired up, like, wait, I, I actually know how to do this one, guys. I think, I, I hope I do. And I think I can, and then you like study super hard to make sure that you do the exact right thing, you know? And then you look around and everyone's doing that, you know? So it's, I think that's the magic of the teams. That mentality that you have of like wanting to do hard things and, and that being kind of your journey to getting into the SEALs. And, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, being able to deal with adversity, to deal with failure. I think there's a lot of people out there that view, you know, failure is a bad thing. And I think when they think of the things they want to accomplish in their lives, oftentimes a lot of those things are big things, which means that there's also a lot of struggle challenges that they're hard, you know, inevitably sometimes the most important things that we need to accomplish as humans, as leaders are oftentimes not easy and they're incredibly difficult. And we got to kind of build up that strength, um, that motivation to go and smash through them. I'm curious, you know, you've probably dealt with a number of scenarios where, you know, you've been, you've had to do something, you've been put on a mission maybe to do something. Um, and at the end of the day, you probably just didn't feel like doing it, but had to kind of smash through those feelings um, in order to get that thing done. What's your kind of approach and, and your advice to those that need to go and do the hard things and build up that motivation to do them? Well, I mean, I, I don't teach motivation at all. I teach discipline. Motivation is fleeting. Who cares? You know, uh, discipline is what makes you do what you're supposed to do. And so 
I teach that. And I think if people say, well, I don't have a hard time discipline, it starts with little things. Like it disciplines like a muscle. You can like work it out. So like maybe, maybe you're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to fast for a day. That mental fortitude of like, and then like you'll develop your own ways of thinking about it. Like, okay, if you're just sitting there thinking about food, waiting like, okay, 14 more minutes until I eat, it's, it's going to be hard. But if you're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do something productive with my time. I'm going to go help somebody else. And, and you start taking the focus off of yourself and onto others and onto tasks and onto accomplishing the mission, um, you'll learn that that discipline muscle will grow. And uh, eventually you'll have that kind of discipline where you can make yourself do the things you don't, I, I don't want to get out of bed. I'm going to get out of bed. You know, I don't want to go to the gym. I'm getting in the gym. You know, um, I think that cultivating that discipline in your, in your life is step one and then spreading it to others is probably that that's where the magic is because now you're kind of being held accountable to being disciplined by the other people that you're teaching. It, it's, it's a weird uh, dichotomy. It's like, you know, I built it myself and now like I've got kids, my kids watch everything I do. Man, yesterday my son was like, like, you need to work out with me, dad. He's eight. I'm like, I was like, I'm actually a little bit sore because I did, I, I have my hips replaced and I, I'm just starting to do deadlifts again. And so when I'm, I'm not going heavy, but when I do them, I'm a little bit sore the next day. And I, I did some jujitsu yesterday. So I was like, all right, I'm kind of sore. And he looks at me, he goes, dad, that doesn't sound like something you would say. I was like, okay, I'll come do some push-ups with you and some, <laughs> and some pull-ups. But you know, it, it's like the accountability ends up working both ways. And, uh, yeah, I'm grateful for my eight-year-old keeping me honest. Yeah, I think, you know, when you cultivate that discipline, yeah, you're, you're right. It is very much like a muscle. And I think oftentimes people build it up to be something larger than it needs to be. It's all about kind of cultivating those tiny habits, those tiny wins, and yep. stacking those up. And eventually they form kind of part of your identity, like you're saying, where now you are a disciplined person and others are maybe viewing you of the, as that. And now that kind of keeps you accountable to maintaining um, that level of discipline and embodying that, not just for yourself, but for, for others. There's a book um, called Atomic Habits, which it sounds like you pretty much just quoted, actually. That's what it, I don't know if you read it, but that's yeah. kind of the gist of the book. Exactly. And I'm curious that, you know, when you're, you've managed like massive projects where the stakes are incredibly high, tons of resources, tons of people you're managing in terms of, you know, you've brought up with me before this concept of, you know, commander's intent. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what is that exactly and how would you define it? And how can leaders maybe apply that to, you know, building their companies and building high performance cultures? Okay. So this is getting on the entrepreneurial track and I love the entrepreneur. You talk about guys who are disciplined or you talk about like, you know, this people that are okay with risk and understand risk. The entrepreneurial space has been one I really enjoy working with. Um, uh, so let, let's uh, just one more time with the question. Yeah, no worries. So, um, you know, back in LA when we, uh, we met, um, I was fascinated by the concept you brought up of commander's intent and how you kind of the system that you were using to manage different resources for when a guy should come to you and look for help with something and the protocol for that versus the, when they should just have autonomy to make the decision themselves. Yep. And I'm curious kind of how that exactly worked and then maybe how some of that may be transferable to leaders in their companies. Okay. So I'll, I'll start off talking about how I learned it. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, we do what's called a platoon leaders order, which 
it has all of the information for an operation. I think now they call it an op board, which is operational order, which is an army term, but we're all trying to go to the army, so we're the same. Anyway, um, they, it's got everything from like the way, how you're gonna walk in, who's gonna load the vehicles, who's carrying what equipment, all, all the way up and down this thing, it's all this information. And I, all my guys brief that and they build it. The only thing that I brief, the only thing that I open my mouth in is commander's intent, and rules of engagement, one at the t beginning, one at the end. And what Commander's Intent does is I can't plan for every contingency that's gonna happen in an operation. And you can't plan for everything that your company needs to do. So if you tell this person, hey, push this button when you see that light, and that's all they know, that's all they're gonna do. And maybe the button gets jammed and they're like, well, my job is just to push it when it gets the light. From but you know, if you give someone your intent, which is like, hey, this button has got to be pushed, has got to be mashed down to this level every time that so now they're like okay got jammed they know to unjam it they know to fix it that's a, just a microcosm of what commander's intent is so i start off with commander's intent consists of three things a mission statement why are we here so we are here to uh capture kill this guy then it starts with specified tasks these are things that we have got to do in order for this mission to be a success so, you know, we have to catch this person. We have to, you know, come back with all of our equipment and all of our people. And then you have implied tasks. These are things that I have extrapolated as the boss that I think we need to do. So, you know, maintain, uh, maintain a clandestine signature. So don't like, don't let us know we're there until we keep the element of surprise till last moment. Uh, don't harm any people who are not involved in this bad guy network because what ends up happening is you hurt the wrong person and now you've just made more bad guys. And then at the end, you have desired end state. And desired end state is, hey, we're all back here. This guy is behind bars. We're staged, ready for our next, our next uh, follow-on operation. So when you say those things to people, it empowers them to not have to do, just sit here and push that button. Like, I understand what, what the bigger deal is. And my guys are allowed, if, if they can explain to me what they did within the commander's intent and the rules of engagement, you know, hey, why did you go to that uh, next village? I didn't need you running over there. Well, you know what? The guy we were after went over there. I didn't have time to tell you. So I just told you I'm moving to the next, to the next village. And, I, and, you know, I'm okay, stand by. I'm clearing the aircraft. He's moving. I'm not questioning him because I know that he understands what he's supposed to be doing. So I'm just going to set the thing up for it. And afterwards, we'll work it out. Like, I'll be like, hey, what were you doing over there? Oh, this is why you can explain to me clearly. Or why did you take that shot? Well, the rules of engagement state this. He met that threshold because we give people what they deserve and only what they deserve. And so it's a way to empower your whole organization. And uh, like I say, it might be a hour and a half op board that we're briefing about this, this operation we're gonna do. And I only speak for maybe five minutes because the guys are the ones that build the plan, do all, do all of the, the real work. Yeah, the way that sort of functions reminds me a little bit of the sort of like 10-80-10 rule that I've learned over the years, which is like, you know, when you're, looking to get a project done on a team kind of similarly like what's the mission why do we need to get this done why is this important that's kind of like your first 10 percent of the project that you're helping kind of define uh the project its importance to the team from there letting you know your a players execute on that with the next kind of 80 percent of that project yep and then yep. once that's at like a final stage if needed you know you're just kind of there for the final 10 percent just to you know, review anything that's needed, answer any key questions if there are any, put kind of the chef's touch on it if needed, and then yeah. ship it. Um, so no, I like the 
like, yeah, the, the systemized approach to it. And then, yeah, like you're saying, kind of empowering those around you with, you know, they know the intent, they know the mission, trust those around you to kind of now execute on it. And if they do it wrong, and it's because it's something you didn't explain, it's your fault. And that's usually it. The guys, they operate, they know what they're supposed to do. And if they went outside the lines, I'm like, ah, uh, I, I, I didn't tell you about that piece. So, you know, it's incumbent upon you to give these things in very succinct bites that people can remember on the fly and apply. That's got to be, the, I think, one of the toughest parts of like managing a team and leadership that I find is inevitably any mistakes that are made or, um, you know, any screw ups that you didn't foresee. Oftentimes it comes down to just looking yourself in the mirror and, you know, Every really time. auditing your own stuff. And it's painful yeah. as hell. Sometimes you're like, how did we there's no way we could have missed this thing. Like I, I defined it. I did this. Well, it's like, no, but you didn't follow up after this conversation that you had with you know, John and, and update the guy on, on that. So that's why it was missed. And you're like, damn, it is, you know, it was my mistake. It almost so, always um, is that you're like, dang it. Yeah. And, it and if it wasn't something you should have thought of, because it's not going to get fixed unless you, you know, you implement changes for that. Yeah. And so, you know, since, uh, you know, retiring, I know you've, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you've been building out, you know, sushi assassin, I think built off of potentially your your passion for spearfishing and, and building things and probably utilizing a lot of like the, the principles, the lessons, the techniques that you've learned from your experience. I know you also consult with a lot of uh, big companies on leadership, resilience. I'm curious, you know, what are some of the biggest skills that you learn from the SEALs and how they've kind of transferred to your entrepreneurial career? Uh, I've done 22 years in the team. So that's, I mean, it's, it is kind of who I am. Um, I think what I'm finding that transfers most of the business world is being comfortable with risk because I think that people are uncomfortable with risk. They're going to go to college, they're going to get a middle management job at a big firm and they're going to slowly work their way up and, you know, be in debt and pay their taxes. And, you know, I think risk in the entrepreneurial, like for us, we're like, we weigh everything. It's like, Hey, we risk can never be gone. It should only be mitigated. And so we do all the things we do, we, we, all the steps we can take to mitigate that risk. And then risk is opportunity, right? Because that, that's our chance to thrive in that area because we believe that we're better trained than whoever is we're going up against um, in, that, in that arena. And I think that's the same thing that happens with entrepreneurs. And so that ability to look at risk as opportunity and to be comfortable operating in an among risk is something that I think that's a, something I bring to the table to a lot of these corporations and just looking at it a different way. Because I think people hear risk and they think bad. It's like, no, 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 risk is good. It's just a matter of how you, uh, how you attack it. Risk is a interesting sort of topic. I mean, I think it can be tricky for a lot of people because when they see something that's risky, um, oftentimes you can kind of shut down or you get even into a mode of almost like analysis paralysis, uh, where mm -hmm. you're just kind of collecting more information and more information and you're 80% sure you think you should make, you know, this specific action, but you know, you want to maybe collect even more just to try and get to that, you know, hundred percent level. And I know, you know, yeah. from, you know, entrepreneurial legends like Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. he talks a lot about decision velocity, the idea of, you know, making decisions when you have 70% of the available information mm -hmm. and just keep moving because, you know, startups are built for speed. I'm curious, like, how do you, you know, you're staring risk at the face, you know, you see it as opportunity. At what point do you kind of take that plunge and, and how do you think about, uh, you know, making decisions in spite of adversity and maybe not having all of 
the data you need to feel 100% comfortable? You know, I, I'm gonna go off off script here a little bit because we think in terms of stories and that's why I talk in terms of stories. And that's just how humans are wired. That's how stuff was passed down for years. And so what I end up doing is like, once that my guys know what kind of information I need, I expect them to push it to me as, fast, as soon as they can, as rapidly and in a digestible form. So, you know, uh, when we run radio comms, it's a very clean, succinct way they talk to me. They'll be like, well, to tell me who they're, they're reaching out to. I know it's me. Okay, I got to listen to this because I have another station on in the other ear. Um, and I start to build a, a theory, like what I think is happening, like all these little pieces that they're telling me about, I'm building and I've got a, a map in front of me and I'm drawing what I think is happening. And so I build this scenario and you make a hypothesis. And at some point you're like, okay, there's a lot of factors in this. Like, hey, how much time do I have? Like if I'm bringing in a medevac helicopter, I don't want it to get shot down, but you know, this guy is bleeding out. I need to get him in sooner rather than later. So, you know, we think about how do I mitigate that risk? Okay, I think I can build a perimeter. Guys, if you can move him 200 yards off to this uh, helo landing zone, I think I can set enough security we can get the helicopter in here, but I have to do it quick because he only has 15 minutes of on-station time before he runs out of gas and had to, has to head back. So there's a lot of calculus going on, but you end up building a story based on what your team tells you. And, you know, it's nice. I have, you always have a senior enlisted in the SEAL teams with you if you're an officer. The senior enlisted has got a ton of experience and I was super blessed to have Jason Torrey, who was just an amazing senior enlisted guy. And now he's the chief operating officer for uh, a Silicon Valley company. And uh, he, he would be there and I'm like, yeah, I think this is what's happening. And he'll look at it and he'll be like, no, that is not what I, because he's, he's got different nets on in his ear. And so he can add to the story. I'm like, oh, so this assault actually is, you know, not going the way I thought it was. And okay, got it. So now I, I changed my, my, my story and now I have this new theory and then I have to make, I have to make the next steps. Cause I'm, as a ground force commander, you're living like 30, 40 minutes in the future. The guy on the, in the ground is living in the moment. And so you have to understand wh where you are in your decision matrix, like where you live based on what's your position. And in general, the higher up you go, the farther in the future you live. And so you build this theory and then you, set the, you stack the deck based on your theory. No, no, it's, it's interesting too when we, you can have those theories as to what's going on uh, and, you know, all oftentimes you know, as an example, make an assumption as to, okay, if I'm trying to get this business from, you know, where it is today to, let's say to get it to eight figures a year, Exactly. you know, I have a certain theory about, okay, how this needs to go, the team we're going to need, the product we need to have in place, the pricing we need to have in place. And then it's interesting. You can take that strategy, which you think is bulletproof. You've, you know, run through all the scenarios or at least what you believe to be all the scenarios. And then you bring that to someone who's been around the block, a, a fellow mentor of yours, and they just rip it to shreds. <laughs> and I, metaphor. That's exactly uh, it. You're like, <laughs> and, uh, it's always, it's always humbling. And I, it's interesting. I feel like there's a lot of people that have anxiety around, uh, you know, bringing those plans or bringing their thinking and being vulnerable around what they're thinking to a mentor, because they're worried about it getting ripped to shreds and something I've become almost addicted to over, you know, the last decade or so is almost that feeling of anxiety or insecurity afterwards once someone has yeah. seen whatever plan I have in place, ripped it to shreds, and almost that feeling of like, damn, like I don't know what I'm doing or I really got to figure my yeah. shit out. Yeah. It's nice to feel that because it's like, wow, someone really has your back and you're in good hands yeah. um, and someone's really 
you know, looking at what you're doing and helping you avoid some grave errors that you are about to make and a lot of wasted time, yeah. wasted effort, um, and just a lot of probably pain and agony. I'm curious from, you know, the different leaders you've had the ability to be exposed to and, you know, from the people I've talked to, our good friend Steve and others, like the amount of people that respect your leadership style across the board. Um, I've heard many amazing stories and the impact that you've had on people. From your perspective, like what separates a, a good leader from a great leader? I'm going to sing the same song I said before, which is humility. Uh, a guy that can, or a gal that can get up in front and take on criticism and then in business parlance, pivot based on, you know, something that someone else, an experience that they observe from someone else, they don't have to experience it for themselves um, and, and take feedback. So I think humility is what is the difference between a good leader and a great leader. That's all the sense. Well, um, Jimmy, this has been a, a great um, chat and I appreciate um, all you've done uh, for the country and all uh, the amazing learnings uh, from knowing you. I appreciate everything you've passed down and um, I appreciate you being vulnerable here and sharing your stories, your experience. And um, I think uh, a lot of people are going to get a ton of value uh, from these lessons. So um, thank you so much for, for being here today. I have one thing I want to add on the back. Um, so my, my new mission now that I'm out, uh, I've got a nonprofit called Beyond the Brotherhood. It's a 501c3 organization. And, uh, you know, one of the things I really don't quite understand yet is, you know, that the team guys lead the league in suicide uh, after they get out. And since my retirement had done December 16th, you know, it's been like three months, I've had three guys that I know kill themselves. And it's really a frustrating thing and we're trying to figure out how to get after it. And I don't know the, all the answers, but what I, my share of the task, I think, is we're going to build a community beyond the brotherhood and it starts off with helping guys as they get out and so when they get out people don't understand what, what this person is usually they have a master's degree it's stale because it's you know, they've been living in the shadows for a while they don't have any social media don't have any network and i want to and they're getting ripped out of the brotherhood and i think building this community on the outside is going to be really important and so we took we did 14 people last year we got four guys right now on the hopper that we're screening we take the best highest character skills as they transition and we put them in touch with our corporate partners who want to hire want to be mentors want to donate want to get those last bits of, of training and so if we can get you know i'm looking for just a couple good corporate partners who want to get after this this mission and uh, i've got a couple good ones right now um but we're always looking for a couple more so if uh, you're listening to this and you're feeling like you know you want to get involved in this community. These are great guys. Be part of our community. We will get, you know, make you a partner and get you plugged in and everyone has something to offer. Yeah. We'll put the link for people to get involved there and, and help out, um, in the description below. 